0: I think that everyone has fears. Some folks are more conscious of what they're afraid of than others. Some folks are um, even not tuned in to what they fear, but I think everybody has fears. Uh, It's the person who says, I'm not afraid of anything that I think probably hasn't lived a very self-examined life. Having said that, it is somewhat personality-driven. There are some people who are more fearful than other folks. At least their fears are more conscious in their minds. And then I also seem to uh, pick up on the fact that there are some generational aspects to this, that older folks tend not to at least not share their fears, and younger folks seem to be overwhelmed in many ways. If you look at some of the mental health statistics, uh, overwhelmed by their fears. This morning, whether you are in that category of I don't have anything that I'm afraid of or I'm completely overwhelmed by my fears the passage that we are going to examine today is for you we are in the book of Philippians chapter 1 verses 27 through 30 so I invite you to open your bibles there Philippians 1 27 through 30. We're in a series called Struggling Well the joy of the Christian journey. And over the last three weeks in October, we looked at three aspects of struggling well, the joy of the Christian journey, and we're picking it up now after our missions conference. Just to review for you where we've been, in verses 1 through 11, we looked at struggling well in community. Paul wrote to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, I'm always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Struggling well in community. Then we looked at verses 12 through 18 and looked at struggling well that Christ may be proclaimed. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Most of the brothers, having become more confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. And then, on the last Sunday of October, we looked at struggling well, and here's a topic, struggling well no matter what happens. And Paul says, let's think of the big possibilities. If I live, that's Christ. And if I die, that's gain. So no matter what happens, I can struggle well. But you know, this struggling well in community and struggling well that Christ be proclaimed and struggling well no matter what happens begs a question, doesn't it? What do I do with my fears? It's to this question that the Apostle, our wonderful, beloved Apostle Paul, now turns, and he's giving us some good instruction on struggling well without fear. Would you stand for the reading of God's Word this morning, Philippians 1, verses 27 to 30? Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that... You should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now here I still have. Please be seated. Well, struggling well without fear requires one ambition, making our manner of life worthy of the gospel that has changed us. Uh, He begins by saying, only. (laughs) That's a single-mindedness. Do this. Make sure of this. Have a single-mindedness about this. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, we as Christians tend to mess up in one of two directions when we hear uh, uh, an instruction like that. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. One way we mess up is that we will think, we could wrongly think, that we have to measure up to Christ's perfection. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That means, well, i got to be perfect, like Jesus is perfect. And we end up, what we will end up doing there is making a bunch of rules, we just make them up to help us measure how we're doing. And most of the time that ends up in hypocrisy and legalism and the devil leads us into pride or he leads us into fear of knowing that we haven't measured up. The second way that we can misunderstand an instruction like this, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, is that we can tend to think that we don't need to think at all about letting our manner of life reflect the gospel transformation that knowing Christ brings us. And this leads us to excuse our sin and ends up in hypocrisy once again and spiritual defeat, and the devil accuses us that we are not Christ's. You see how those two ways of thinking are not what the apostle means. Either way, we're ending up in fear. What does Paul mean then? Well, when he says, let your manner of life, that is actually a statement of the conduct of a citizen. It's a a political term. Let your citizenship, your conduct as a citizen be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul is actually foreshadowing something he's going to be talking about in detail in chapter 3, that the believer's citizenship is not here. It is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, what he is saying is, live as citizens of a different country. Live as citizens of heaven in a way worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, some of you may be old enough to remember citizenship grades. Remember citizenship grades? Uh, Some of that was just conduct, right? You you got a good grade because you were a well-behaved person. You got a bad grade because you were an ill-behaved person. Others of it was that you stood and said the pledge and you knew the Pledge of Allegiance. You knew a few patriotic songs. You knew a little bit of American history, you get a good citizenship grade. Um, What what Paul is saying here is if you want to struggle well in this life without fear, it requires this ambition on your part, making your conduct as a citizen of heaven worthy of the gospel that has saved you. You're not just responsible for yourself for self-improvement, you're responsible for yourself for the good example it leaves for others. It's your obligation to society. When you have citizenship here, it is part of your being a part of the culture, a part of the society. And being a good citizen, a law-abiding citizen, is what helps the whole nation be a better place. My son, Wyn, uh, went to a school that uh, at one point, Robert E. Lee, right after the Civil War, became the president of the the institution. And Lee, when he became president of this school, came saw that there was a huge set of rules, rules everywhere, rules for what everybody should do, when to get up, when to go, you know, just rules, rules, rules. And Lee said, we're scrapping the rule book and we're gonna have one rule. Let every student, at the time it was an all-male school, let every student behave as a gentleman, as a perfect gentleman at all times. That was the only rule of the school. To this day, Washington and Lee University has that one rule, there's no other rule. And where there's violations of that rule, they uh they have a tribunal and they will kick the student out so at washington and lee people leave their computers out there's no stealing all of that what what is going on then what's going on is there was there's this this idea of citizenship that causes people to have their manner of life be worthy of the standards of the school. Here, Paul is saying, let your manner of life be worthy of being a citizen of heaven, worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, immediately we're thinking, well, what's worthy? Who is worthy for this? And the answer is none of us. But that's where we have to think of what's the worthiness toward, worthy toward, oh, this is so beautiful, the gospel. The gospel is not a list of rules to follow, brothers and sisters. The gospel is good news to believe. The gospel is good news to believe and to herald, to tell others about it. To be able to say, yes, I'm a sinner and I have sinned and I fall short and I trust Jesus now and I'll trust him tomorrow and I'll trust him the next day. And a willingness to admit wrong and fault A repentance of that wrong and fault, and a pleading to God for strength for tomorrow. That's worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then he says here in verse 27 standing firm. This is another way of saying struggling well without fear. It's a military term, standing firm, it means firmly committed in conviction. And this standing firm is not a dependency on people, but upon the Lord. It's a standing firm no matter what happens. Notice Paul brings up some possibilities of things that could happen. Whether I come and see you or I am absent. Paul is saying that whatever happens, we can stand firm without fear. Um, It's kind of interesting because, I don't know about you, but if I were a a member of the church at Philippi, I'd be counting on the Apostle Paul coming to help. Who of us wouldn't want the Apostle Paul to come and and minister in our, our congregation? But what Paul is saying is that we can live without fear no matter what happens. They may have been very dependent, placed too high a value on Paul's coming and in one sense, who could blame them, but, they're say, but Paul is saying, no, whether I come and see you or am absent, you can stand firm in one spirit in one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Um, what does standing firm look like? Well, let's look at what he says here, in one spirit with one mind. Now, you'll notice some of your Bibles will say, in one spirit, and the S is capitalized. Others will say, in one spirit, and it's a little s. And commentators are about evenly divided. Is he saying that you stand firm in unity, one spirit of unity as a church? Or is it in one spirit, Holy Spirit, capital S? I'm going to suggest to you that I think the best way to understand it is Holy Spirit, capital S. Because anytime this phrase, in spirit, is used in the New Testament, there is some way in which that phrase is hearkening to the Holy Spirit of God. And so, we have to depend, don't we? If we're going to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ, we have to depend upon the Holy Spirit's power in our lives. But not only that, Paul goes on to say we stand firm in one Spirit, the Spirit's power, but we also are doing it with one mind. That is, there is a unity. There is a need for community. There is a need for brothers and sisters to spur one another on to love and good deeds. There's a need for every one of us to be on the same team together so that we all may live lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. Next, he says striving side by side. I've said that he used this military term that's translated standing firm. Here he uses another military term Standing side by side. We need to do this together. The, the imagery that Paul is giving us here, standing side by side or striving side by side, is soldiers who are organized shoulder to shoulder. A group of uh, a military unit that is organized and unified will be able to defeat another military unit that is much larger that is disorganized and ununified, right? And so what Paul is saying here is that in struggling well without fear, we have this one ambition of making our manner of life worthy of the gospel. We do it with the power of the Holy Spirit and we do it striving together, shoulder to shoulder, side by side for the faith of the gospel. I believe that faith of the gospel is the faith that is the gospel, this central focus of our lives that we are sinners, we cannot save ourselves. Jesus came and died on the cross to forgive us of our sins. Whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life, striving side by side for the faith that is the gospel. Then beginning of verse 28, and not frightened, and not frightened in anything. Isn't that amazing? Not frightened in anything. This phrase, not frightened, is only used here in the New Testament. It's the idea of being surprised or startled, even startled when persecution comes. Have you ever had somebody, you're walking down the hallway and somebody's in the other corner and goes, boo, (laughs) and you some of you were asleep and just got startled. Um, that's the word that's being used here. <laughs> I'm laughing at my own joke there inside. Um, not startled or surprised when trouble comes. It is a foolish believer in Jesus who is shocked that in this life, trouble comes. You're a fool if you think that you're going to live, go through life trouble-free. You're going to face hard things. You're going to face really hard things and not be frightened or startled or shocked when persecution comes. Again, the imagery is one of a battlefield, that horses on a battlefield do not get frightened or turn tail and run in the midst of the battle, not startled in anything by your opponents. Generally, this is having to do with persons, people who are opposed to the gospel, and we will, I believe in the years ahead, face more and more of this in our own culture where there will be people who will be opposed to the gospel, and we will pay uh, in some ways, an economic price, a political price, uh, a, a wide variety of, of uh, prices for naming the name of Jesus and calling ourselves Christians and seeking to make Him known. Don't be shocked or startled by that. Instead, struggle well without fear. Now, having said that, I also want to suggest to you That when Paul says, not frightened in anything by your opponents, even though it is persons here, we shouldn't discount the fact that there are other kinds of opposition that come to us, some from the circumstances of life, some from our own self-accusation. There's all kinds of places where Opposition comes rather than uh, in addition to actual physical people who are opposing us. And I don't know that Paul is discounting that when he says what he does here. So, struggling well without fear requires this ambition only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, the second half of verse 28, he says, This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, that is the opponents, but of your salvation and that from God. Your opponents have an end. This should cause us to live without fear. No matter how hot the opposition gets, we have an understanding that they have an end. Their end is destruction. We should remind ourselves of that. Our standing firm is in fact a sign to our opponents of the gospel which leads to their, in fact, destruction. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction if they don't obey the gospel, if they do not put their faith and hope in Christ. Our not being frightened by our opponents, not being startled or shocked, our not being frightened is a sign to them. It speaks to them of coming destruction. And that doesn't mean annihilation, it means eternal destruction as we saw in 2 Thessalonians 1 in our series there. The second thing is that we know our destiny. Our destiny is, what's the word used here? Salvation. Remind yourself of that as well. Your salvation is in fact a sign to opponents of the gospel that the gospel truly saves. You see, in order to live without fear, we got to know the end. Have you ever watched a, a, a football game or a sporting event where you knew the end of the game and it was your team that won? You knew your team won? All through the game, after you, if you know the end of it, you kind of watch it going, yeah, that was bad, but we're still going to win. Yeah, that was bad, but we're still going to win. Yeah, this is really bad but we're still going to win. And that's what Paul is saying to believers. God is in charge of the game. (laughs) Their destruction, our salvation, and that, the whole thing, everything about existence is from God. So we don't have to be afraid. We know our destiny. The entire process is from God. Now verses 29 and 30, struggling well without fear requires an acceptance of real hardship. Verse 29, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. This phrase, it has been granted, that's a very interesting phrase. What he means there, what that means is, it is a gracious gift. It is a grant. God is giving us a gift. What gift is it? The gift of suffering for the sake of Christ. Paul picks up on this idea back in Colossians 1 where he says, I rejoice in what I am suffering for you and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body, which is the church. It's, it's one thing to hold up under suffering. It is quite another thing to regard suffering as a gift from God. And that's the way we can live without fear. It requires an acceptance of real hardship as, in fact, a gift from God. In verse 29, he says, you should not only believe in him. Well, that's a challenge in itself, isn't it? To believe in him, though we don't regard it that way very often. That means trust in him for salvation. Trust in him, come what may. Trust him, not ourselves, for eternal life. Trust his word on countless hard matters. Let's not just run past that. That's not an easy thing, not only to believe in him. But more than that, but, big contrast, but also to suffer for Him. Do you see the phrase, sake, used twice here? For the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. It is on Christ's behalf we believe and we suffer. It is on Christ's behalf, for the sake of Christ, for His sake. That, brothers and sisters, is what makes suffering a gift. When we suffer as believers, we are suffering for Christ. We are suffering on Christ's behalf. we get the privilege of suffering on Christ's behalf. One of my favorite missionaries of all time is Dr. Helen Rosevere. She died in her 90s just about five years ago. Uh, she was a tour de force. Uh, she had established medical clinics and hospitals in uh, the Belgian Congo at the time and had trained countless uh, medical workers, uh, doctors, nurses. Um, There's just a big, long story. She wrote two autobiographies. One is called Give Me This Mountain, and the second was called He Gave Us a Valley. I commend them both to you. Um, I had the privilege of having dinner with Dr. Rosevere many years ago, and I'll tell you, she's a spunky woman. Um, In the 1960s, she was captured by rebels in a uh, coup of the country, where she was brutally, brutally tortured, beaten, raped, all of it over and over, over a long period of time. Had most of her teeth knocked out. And she was rescued taken back to England to recover from her injuries, and she went back to the same place to serve Jesus. Dr. Rosevere, before she died, uh, conducted countless interviews, and I wanna share with you a th- a, a, just a brief few minute excerpt of her being interviewed about her experiences under suffering for Jesus' sake. Let's watch.
1: Out of the veranda of the house at one moment, and this little I don't know what Sergeant Major of the Rebel Soldiers stood there with a gun pointed, a pistol pressed against my forehead. Uh, and I don't know if it was loaded or not, but I presumed it was. Uh, and he said, Say that Lumumba, and that was their patron saint, say that Lumumba is the savior of the world. You know, I wasn't praying, I wasn't thinking, but I just knew that wasn't true. <laughs> I knew the only one saviour of the world, and that was Jesus. So I just said, no, never. Jesus is the only saviour of the world. I think in my heart, I think I was actually praying he would shoot. It would have been quick, clean, finished. But, but uh, out, on the, out on the courtyard was one of my junior students from the college, uh, and uh, he was being held by these men. And he broke loose, and he threw himself between me and this little soldier who said, you don't touch her over my dead body, and they turned on him, and they beat him up so savagely. Uh, I didn't know till well, two years later that he was not killed, actually. He survived, but it was terrible, terrible. Then they drove me down the corridor of my home, and somehow in that moment, I, I think I was saying, God, where are you? What, whatever's going on? And there was suddenly a tremendous, what can I say, consciousness. God was there, with a big... Uh, and, uh, he was there was a moment where you thought you'd been abandoned. Well, I, I don't think I ever lost my faith in God, but I just felt he wasn't looking after me. Exactly. <laughs> but, uh, and, and suddenly I knew he was, and he was in charge, and that these rebel soldiers were very small compared to the almightiness of God. Uh, and uh, as they drove me down the corridor, I think he spoke to me, but I didn't hear words. It was after I was looking back, I had to ask the Lord, what did you actually say, put into words for me? I think what he said was, can you thank me? And my heart was saying, no, this has gone too far. I, I knew what lay ahead. I could see the whole thing was horrible. Uh, and uh, he said, can you thank me for trusting you? I, I thought, this is unbelievable. I know I trust him, but I never thought of him trusting me. Mm-hmm. It was revolutionary to think that he trusted me. And in this second, I could see what he was saying. I thought I could trust you. I thought you wouldn't bite me. <laughs> and God was saying, can you thank me for trusting you with this experience, even if I never tell you why? And I, even in the midst of the darkness, it was, I'd only split minute, all this, uh, it was, dear Lord, I don't know what you're saying. I don't know why you're saying it. I don't know who will ever be blessed by this, but if this is part of your plan, yes, thank you for trusting me." And immediately uh, I was flooded with a sense of the enormous peace, peace of God. It was wonderful. I just knew, it it was as though he said, all I want of you is the loan of your body. Uh, And it was Jesus in me. They weren't fighting me, they were fighting Jesus. Uh, and all I had to do is say, yes, Jesus, I'm yours. You're in me, you, 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 just as you want.
0: I love the phrase that she used, I never lost my faith in God, I just didn't know if he was looking after me. You know? Could identify with that. Can you identify with that? You know, in general terms, of course God's there, but is he looking after me? It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also that you should suffer for his sake. The reason that we know that this is being granted to us is that we, you and I, are engaged in the same agony that Paul had. The word agony is the same word that's used as translated conflict here in verse 30 engaged in the same conflict. It's an athletic term describing the pain involved in the struggle of the contest, often with, in wrestling or in running. And we have it. We are engaged in this suffering. There's no escaping it. Some of it is because of our life in a fallen world. Some of it is because this world is not a friend to the gospel of Christ. But it is the same conflict that Paul had. It is the conflict of the rejection of the gospel. And it's immediately obvious to the senses. You see it, that you saw I had. You hear it, now hear that I still have. And at moments like Dr. Rosevere experienced, you feel it. You know it. What is the keys to struggling well without fear? It's having one ambition, to live a life worthy of the gospel. It is knowing our destiny that there will be destruction of the enemies of Christ, but salvation for those who love the Savior, and accepting real hardship. As a gracious gift from God. Without these, fears will overwhelm us. With these, we can face whatever life brings us with a confident joy. As we conclude the message this morning, I'm going to take a minute. And if you have a piece of paper and something to write with, or even a place where you can write a note on your phone, um, I'll give you permission to pull out your phones now, I want you to write down an answer to this question, what are your fears? Somebody in the first service said, my fears are writing down my fears. (laughs) Um, I want you to write down your fears. And then we will take them to the Lord in a moment. Take a moment to write down your answer to that question, what are your fears? Heavenly Father, all over this room, people have written down their fears. Lord, help us to overcome these by living lives worthy of the gospel, by knowing our destiny. And I pray that if there's any who have never put their faith in Jesus, that they would do that right now. That's Something that's so important to overcoming fear, that they would know their destiny by putting their faith in Christ to forgive them of their sins. He died on the cross to pay for our sin. He rose from the dead. To believe in Jesus Christ alone is so critical here, and then to accept real hardship. As a gracious gift from God, to do so knowing that we have been given this gracious gift not only to believe in Him, that's a gift, to believe in Jesus, but also to suffer for His sake. Now Lord, we pray that whatever the fears are that have been written down here, we may be able to apply these three principles to overcoming those fears and that we may experience, in exchange of our fears, a deep peace that would abide in a long-lasting way in our hearts. Help us to recognize that we do not do this alone, that we do it with one mind striving side by side together. Teach us what it means to have the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives in one spirit standing firm. And Lord, help us to recognize that in this life, we will never be free of conflict, but we are equipped for every possible outcome. Lord, thank you so much for this good instruction from your Word, and I pray for my brothers and sisters here that you would enable each one to struggle well, without fear. In Jesus' name, amen.